0: My most loving pranams at Bhagwan's Lotus Feet. Dear listeners, I welcome you to this week's episode of the Gita series, A Triune Pilgrimage. This is Prem, your friend from Team Radio Sai and I'm here at our facility, Shri Siddha Media Centre and it is my pleasure to join you all week after week as part of this program where we go through the Bhagavad Gita verse by verse. We are in a stage where we will be completing the sixth chapter. So which means, chapter wise, we are completing one third of the Bhagavad Gita and I think that's quite a lot. And I really, really thank each one of you for this opportunity to be with you all and to join you all in the study of Bhagavad Gita. Of course, the mic is with me, so I'm the one who speaks and you're all listeners. But nevertheless, I am as much part of you all as a listener as uh, I pray and I hope I'm allowing Swami to speak through me and I am also gaining in the process. We will go through the verses that we completed last week as a short summary before we go on with the verses that we have for today and conclude this chapter. We completed four verses. 41, 42, 43 and 44. All these shlokas are in response to a query that Arjuna raised which is what happens to a yoga brashta? Given how demanding this path of yoga is, as Krishna himself had explained and he spoke of the enormous amount of mental focus that is required, mental balance that is needed. So Arjuna is asking, given how tough this path is, what happens when one fails? What happens when one slips in this journey? And Arjuna specifically wants to know the answer to this question from Krishna because no one else can claim to have knowledge of what happens after this period of death when completes one's life's sojourn and has not been successful in this endeavour what happens to that particular Jivatma that nobody else can give everybody else can only give a theoretical answer but an authentic answer can come only from Lord Krishna and very specifically Arjuna says, I would like to hear it from you. In the 41st verse, firstly Krishna explains that the person reaches lokaha, the land that is meant for those who perform punyas so or good deeds. And then having reached there, Krishna says he resides there for countless years. Shashwati hi samaha and we of course discussed what it means by Shashwatihi hi sama what it means by saying that he lives there for endless time. After this, he says, Shuchinam Shrimatam Gehe Abhijayate He or she is born in a house that is prosperous and cultured or noble. suchinam Shrimatam In the next shloka, that is 42nd, Krishna says, Either what is said above happens, that is he is born in an affluent family which is noble and cultured, or the person is born in a family of yogis, yoginam kule, in a lineage of yogis. But then quickly Krishna adds that this is much more rare and difficult to obtain than what was mentioned before. But in both cases, the idea that Krishna conveys is that no amount of good actions that has been performed, not even a trace of that goes to waste. Because in the process of trying to be a karma yogi, one performs good actions and there are always rewards for those good actions. He is born in an affluent family. He is born in a good family where he is given the right kind of atmosphere to lead a good life. Right? That's what Krishna is saying here. But Arjuna is not asking about these kind of benefits coming out of a yogic life. What Arjuna is interested in and what we all should be interested in when Arjuna is voicing this question is, what happens to the spiritual attainment? We are not interested in, I come here for gaining in the spiritual path, but if you promise me more wealth, if you promise me a comfortable family, if you promise me even good parents, what has that got to do with what I have asked for? I am interested in my spiritual attainment. So that Krishna clarifies in the next verse which is the 43rd verse where he says in the next birth he reacquires that paurva dehikam buddhisam yogam that buddhi that he had acquired in the previous body he reattains that or reacquires that in this birth be it a birth of suchinam a a household that is cultured and affluent or in the family of yogis when he is born it is not merely born into good conditions he reattains or regains whatever progress that he had made he or she i'm just using the word he it doesn't mean he specifically he or she attains in the previous birth is reattained after being born in a family as described above after having spent considerable amount of time in what is referred to as heaven. Now I had completed the 44th verse last time, but I had not completed it completely. I promise that I will come back to that and I will elaborate a little more on that. So we will do that. But Before that, the idea of whatever Krishna is saying about uh, what happens to this person is, he is not only born in a good life after having strived to become more spiritual, he is also given an environment where he can reacquire whatever spiritual knowledge that he had gathered and also he will be able to move much further ahead in this journey. And that is why the next shloka, the 44th shloka which I said I'll discuss a little further, is a very interesting verse where Krishna speaks of the force of these past yogic efforts. In the third chapter when Arjuna had asked about uh, why is it that people act as though they are propelled by some force from within even though they want to do something else or even though they want to refrain from doing a certain act they seem to be something that is driving them from within. right? And in that context Krishna had spoken about how the inner prakriti or one's inner nature tends to drag one into activities and literally an invisible hand which is making us do whether we want to do it or we don't want to do it. Here Krishna says that that is true even when it comes to spiritual aspirations and desires. Krishna says in this verse Tena Purva Abhyasena Eva Verily by the previous practice avashaha Api even helplessly, saha, he is carried forward. There are two words that we use to describe this force of past practices. What Krishna is saying here, avashaha api, even despite one, helplessly one is dragged into doing because of tena purva abhyasena eva. So what are these two words that we often come across in literature pertaining to Vedanta, you will find these words even in Swami's discourses that is used to describe this force that is pushing us from within which we all know has a little bit of connection with what we have done in our past. These two words are samskaras and vasanas. If you really look deep within at these two words, you will understand that both actually mean the same. Both have a similar idea behind them. But based on how Swami speaks about these in Swami's discourses, it clearly shows that samskaras has a more positive connotation and vasanas are more or less used in a negative sense. So whenever any karma is performed, when a karma is performed with a conscious intent, that is the most important part, when an action is performed consciously with a certain force of emotion Apart from having a result in front of you, right when you're doing something, there is an obvious result in front of it. There is also a karmic consequence to it. But apart from these results, that action also leaves a certain impression on the mind. And this is carried in what we refer to as the subconscious mind. So when I act out of anger, that forms a certain impression in the subconscious mind. When I act out of greed, when I act out of jealousy, these form certain subconscious impressions in the mind. Similarly, when I act out of compassion or I forgive someone consciously or I do small acts of goodness out of my empathy or I do sadhana with the idea that I must purify my mind, I must achieve something more than what is worldly all of these also leave marks on the subconscious mind. These then eventually form instincts that force our actions. The negative instincts, as I just said, are referred to as vasanas and the positive ones are called samskaras. And both seem to have a very similar impact on our actions. And what is that? avashaha api kriyate The person is drawn into them even though he or she wants to or doesn't want to, right? So they compel one to act in spite of the will of the individual. The word samskara also means to refine or to purify, right? It's from that uh, same root. The word samskritam also comes. A refined language is the meaning of the word samskritam. So, samskara also means to refine or purify. So, even though these tendencies also can be created in the mind by performing actions in a certain way, choosing to act in a certain way, by creating these positive tendencies or samskaras, we are actually moving closer to who we really are. We are moving closer to our reality. So, even though these samskaras also are created like the vasanas, probably because they take us closer to who we really are. The word samskara is used because it is also a process of refinement from being this human body, we are also becoming who we really are. Maybe that is why it is also referred to as a process of refining. So in any case, every time when we act upon a certain impulse, that impulse gets further strengthened. So I have the vasana of anger. That vasana of anger is pushing me to act. So when I act pushed by that impulse, I further strengthen that impulse. So even though Krishna says here that one is pushed to act in spite of oneself, we know very clearly because back in the third chapter, Krishna very beautifully explained that there is a small window of opportunity to resist this push from the subconscious mind and that is where all our sadhana comes into play and that is where all transformation also comes into play right a lot of uh, confusion often comes between these vasanas samskaras and the philosophy of karma a couple of weeks back when we did that program on the concept of karma along with brother arvind i did it on the youtube a lot of people asked that question about how is vasanas related to karma they are actually two different concepts which go parallelly, which are intertwined in a certain manner. But karmic consequences are different from this karmic, can I call it a scar that is left in the subconscious mind. right? So these vasanas propel one to act but they are not as inescapable as prarabdha at some times. Right? Prarabdha or destiny is something that is bound to happen. If I'm bound to have a certain kind of a disability in this birth, there is nothing much I can do it unless, of course, God's grace come into play. But the vasanas or the samskaras, primarily the vasanas, because we don't want to change the good impressions that are left in the mind. We're only interested in getting rid of the bad impressions or the vasanas. So when it comes to the force of the vasanas, Krishna has said it before and Vedanta also maintains that there is a small window of opportunity where you can push back where you can choose not to follow these vasanas and that's where you begin to strengthen yourself against some of these negative impressions in the mind. That's a different topic altogether. Maybe it'll come back again in the Gita. If it does, we'll discuss about that. So here the point is, good and bad actions, when done consciously, apart from having a physical consequence, apart from having a karmic consequence, they also have this Subconscious consequence of it leaving an impression there. So, good are called samskaras, the bad impressions are called vasanas. Right? So, this is what Krishna says here that these, even though one is a yoga brashta, one has fallen in this path, the achievement that one has gained in the past, these form very strong samskaras which will awaken or reawaken in the following birth and one will again begin to tread on that path. That is what Krishna says here. That's why Krishna clearly says, Purva Abhyasa, which means past practices. And the word Abhyasa is also very specific here, right? Because it is about what you put into practice. It is not about what you have read, what you have heard, what you have accidentally been a part of a satsang and you happen to hear something good. It is not that. Purva Abhyasa, what you have practiced, Right, that forms the samskara and that samskara will awaken again when you take the next birth. That forms the force that impels one. The problem in this verse, I wouldn't say problem, but what complicates this verse is the second line. That is where a certain confusion comes and it also, whenever there is confusion in the Gita, there is scope for misinterpretation. What Krishna says in the second line is, yogaśya. Jignasuhu api. Even the one who wishes to know yoga, Shabda Brahma Vartate, goes beyond Shabda Brahma. Shabda Brahma is one of the names that is used for the Vedas. Shabda Brahma, literally translated, means God in the form of sound, right? But Shabda Brahma is also used as one of the names for the Vedas. And here clearly, I think that is the context in which Krishna is saying that. So he says, Yogasya api, even the one who has the seeking to know about yoga, Shabda Brahma Ativartate, goes beyond Shabda Brahma or the Vedas. In the first line, Krishna says, One who has practiced yoga, here he says, even Jignasurapi Yogasya even one who is a jignasa or an aspirant for knowledge. So in the first line, he was talking about somebody who has practiced abhyasa. In the second line, he is saying even one who has had a certain craving or a seeking for the spiritual path. So what it means is, the moment these spiritual inclinations begin to occupy the mind, the moment the quest begins, there is no turning back. So that is a very important assurance that Krishna is giving. That once the individual turns towards spirituality, once he begins to or she begins to have questions about what more is there to life and starts wondering, that moment itself, the transformation starts and there is no turning back from that moment. The second half of the statement is what causes a little bit of confusion. As I said, Krishna says, Shabda Brahma Ativartate one goes beyond the Vedas. Now here the Vedas is mentioned to represent worldliness. right? That's the interesting part about this particular line because we often speak of Vedas in the context of a spiritual life. Somebody who takes up the study of Vedas or somebody who is committed to the Vedas are always spoken of as being spiritual. But here Shabda Brahma or the Vedas is representative of a worldly quest. And I think we have spoken about this also earlier, I think somewhere in the second or third chapter where Krishna speaks about the different kind of yagnas and how some people do yagna or are dedicated to the Vedas for even worldly benefits, right? Because I think uh, he says that the Vedas are like a kalpaviksha, It can give whatever you ask for. And that is why here, I think, when uh, Krishna speaks about the Vedas, the Vedas can give both. It can give the world, it can also give you freedom from the world. It only depends on what one seeks from it, right? So that part of the Vedas which is referred to as the karmakanda, the portion that relate to actions, that usually is spoken of as the portion that can bestow upon you the desires that you have. I want a son, I want to be successful in my business, I want to rule a kingdom. All of these desires can be attained through so many procedures. They say, if you do this yagna, you will get this. If you do this particular vratam, you will get this. So that portion of the Vedas which gives you the promise of fulfilling all these worldly desires is referred to as karmakanda, right? So the part that speaks about the rituals, the yagnas, and the yagas to achieve one's desires and that is what is represented when Krishna is saying that worldly aspirations are overcome by a Jignasu Rapi Yogasya. The person who has had a little bit of craving towards the spiritual path eventually goes beyond the Shabda Brahma or the Vedas, which is the worldly desires that can be fulfilled. But the Karmakanda also represents the rituals that are expected of a person, especially of somebody who is taken to a family life. right? So that is why this is sometimes explained as a person who is a Yoga Brashta will in the next birth not have to get caught up in the binding of Karmakanda. Which means Karmakanda represents a Grihastha life and when you say a Yoga Brashta overcomes the Vedas it means he overcomes the Karmakanda which in turn means He overcomes a Grihastha life and becomes a (laughs) sannyasi. That is how it is misinterpreted, in my opinion, and of course by many other people who believe that this is not what Krishna means. Because he or she will not renounce everything in the world. That is not the idea that Krishna has been speaking about at all. Krishna, what he is saying, is absolutely contrary to that. Once one turns to yoga, one will no more perform karma for the fruits they bring. One may continue to perform rituals, one may continue to perform yajnas and yagas, if that is what is the duty that one has to perform. But the attitude with which it is performed will be completely different. One will not give up karma but will give up karma phala. That's what Krishna has been explaining all this while. So in that sense, probably this interpretation is inaccurate. It is not that the yoga brashta comes up in the next birth and in that birth he becomes a sannyasi and then so he attains the jnana. He is born in the next birth with these inclinations not to again get caught up in the world and the desires that it tempts us with. Right? So I think that is the more appropriate interpretation for these lines. But this symbolism is very obvious right? and there may be certain cases where this happens. Where a yoga brashta, who is probably a karma yogi, who is a very sincere aspirant, was born in the next birth with a very strong dispassion towards the world, which expresses itself as somebody who wants to take up sannyasa. Somebody like Adi Shankara himself. At the age of eight, he was very clear what he wanted to do with his life. Right? So that may happen, that there may be cases where. The Yoga Brashta is born very clearly with that idea that one does not want to get caught up in this world. In fact, there is another very beautiful example, an episode that happens in the life of uh, Shankaracharya himself when uh, Adi Shankara is travelling all around India. He travelled from north to south, west to east. At one point, he comes to a village of Agnihotras and it is believed that there were about few hundred families in that uh, village and every house would do Agnihotra, which are Yagnyas. And the whole atmosphere, you can imagine, was filled with that beautiful, noble vibrations of Yagnyas and Yagas which were being performed. So when Adi Shankara visits this village, it is said that one particular couple come to him. And uh, they bring along with them their only boy, who is, I think, a teenager at that point in time. And that boy looks very different he looks uh, withdrawn and others don't look at him as being withdrawn. They look at him as being dull and stupid and not ready to learn, probably mentally challenged probably. So these parents bring this boy to Adi Shankara and say that, you know, we belong to this village. We're all Brahmins. We all uh, traditionally learn the Vedas. But our son seems to be a little dull and quiet. He does not take to any of these learnings. And uh, you can imagine, you know, how the parents feel. Nowadays, we feel very bad if the parents are very smart and very intelligent and double PhDs and masters and their child seems to have some learning problem, right? They get really stressed out about that. So you can imagine this is a a Brahmin family. They're known for their tradition of learning Vedas. And they have this boy at the house who seems to be not interested in learning the Vedas or not capable of learning the Vedas. So they come to Adi Shankara asking him to bless this boy so that he can become, quote-unquote, normal like everybody else. So Adi Shankara looks at this boy and asks him, very beautifully he says, boy, what is your name? Where do you come from? And that boy who probably has not spoken in one comprehensible sentence till that point in time, whom everyone thought was mentally challenged. When Adi Shankara asks these questions, he breaks out into a verse. He says, Nahum manushyo nachadeva yaksho and so on and so forth. A very famous verse which says that I am not a man, I am not a yaksha, I am not this body, I am the soul that is brilliant and which is eternal inside. And at that point the parents are stunned to hear this. And then Adi Shankara says that you know your son is not a fool, his son is not mentally deranged, your son is a nyani who does not want to get entangled into this Idea of oh, I have mastered this Veda, I have conquered this knowledge, and I am so knowledgeable and I am so great. He doesn't want to get entangled into this competition and comparison of all these things, and that is why he chooses to be you know within himself. And to the world, he appears like he is a fool, right? And that's why Adi Shankara eventually names him Hastamalaka, a very beautiful name. He says Hastamalaka means somebody who has. A berry in his hand. Amala means the gooseberry, I think. right? So somebody who has a berry in his hand, Hasta Malaka. Adi Shankara says, for this boy, knowledge is like someone who has a fruit in his hand. It is so accessible. It belongs to him, isn't it? If I have a fruit in my berry, how much time it takes for me to eat it? That's how easy is the supreme knowledge for this boy and that's why he names him Hasta Malaka. And eventually he is known as Astamal right? So it does happen that sometimes when somebody is a Yoga Brashta and is forced to be born again in the next birth, he is born with such dispassion that one may choose a life of sannyasa. But to generalize that and to interpret the statement which Krishna is making here might not be appropriate. One is born with a state of mind that one does not get entangled in karma again. One may continue to perform karma, but one does not get entangled in that. One does not get pulled into performing actions for the benefits or the fruits that those karmas can bring. So that is the point uh, that Krishna is making here. So that is the 44th verse. We have three more verses to complete this particular chapter. So we will go to the 45th verse. We listen to it in brother Sham's voice. I'll give you a brief meaning of that. And Then we'll see what Krishna is saying there in detail.
1: Prayatna Yatamanastu Yogi Samsuddha Kilbishaha Ane Kajanmasam Sidhaha Tatoyati Param Gatim.
0: Then, after many lives, the student of spirituality who earnestly strives and whose sins are absolved, attains perfection and reaches the Supreme. So that is the 45th verse of the 6th chapter. Krishna continues with what he has been saying in the past few verses and in a certain sense brings it to a conclusion of sorts in this one. Krishna had said, a yoga brashta does not get ruined. He flourishes in the afterlife by reaching what we may loosely refer to as heaven. Then he is born in a good family. When we say a good family, a family where he has the opportunity to further grow and having been born in such a family, the person progresses further than he has in the past. And this progress happens quite spontaneously in spite of one's will. Right? That's what Krishna had said needless to say I am again mentioning it I am only using he or him only representatively the sadhaka goes through many births and may be born as a man and woman and multiple times gender is not at all what uh, defines one's journey and the pronouns of he and him even she is only used to representatively so in this shloka Krishna says having gone through such a journey this person or reaches the goal eventually. But then he reiterates a few points that are reminders for spiritual aspirants like you and me. So Krishna says, To yogi, then the yogi, Prayatnat Yatmanaha. Having strived hard, we will come to these two words again, Prayatnat Yatmanaha. He says, Prayatnat Yatmanaha. Yogi, this yogi Samsudha Kilbeshaha, who's purified from sins, Aneka Janma Samsidda. He attains success after many many lifetimes. Aneka Janma. Tataha then Yati Param Gatim. He reaches the highest in the path. So Krishna says this journey spans over many lifetimes. Aneka Janmasam Siddha, That which is acquired over many many lifetimes. First one must want to turn to a spiritual life. Right, That's the most important first step which we have been talking about in the past few weeks. And that calls for a certain amount of seriousness, certain amount of commitment. It is not some momentary dispassion That's as Swami had spoken about in one of His discourses and I had quoted. Not dispassion that comes when you see a person being cremated or you are faced with some failures in life and then suddenly you want to renounce the world and become a sannyasi. No, that is not the kind of spiritual commitment or intent that we are talking about. After many, many lifetimes of being righteous, slowly the mind begins to crave for something more than what this world can offer, then it slowly begins to turn to the path of yoga. One becomes a yoga jignasa, as Krishna had mentioned in the previous verse. So what Krishna is saying here is, after many many lifetimes, this happens, then in this path, after one has taken to it, there may be many a slip. And this progress is not halted by death so it is an indication of more than anything else how important patience and perseverance is for this journey how they are the basic qualities that one needs to develop for being on the spiritual path and this again as i was saying goes back to acknowledging that this is the greatest adventure and one must have the Will and intent to pursue it not only in this lifetime, over many lifetimes. Right? So that over many lifetimes will happen. That brings me back to these two words that Krishna makes in the first line. Prayatnat Yatamanaha. Actually, both these words, prayatnam and yatamanaha, actually convey a very similar meaning. Both mean to try assiduously. But the Adi Shankara points out very beautifully in his commentary that there is a slight difference in the meaning and that is why probably Krishna is using both these words. Prayatna means effort or trying. Yatamanaha means one who has resolved and who is holding to that resolution. Yatamanaha also means one who is trying but Yatamanaha also has that slight indication of somebody who is resolved. saying that I want to do this or I want to achieve this. And that's why... Krishna uses both these words prayatnat one who is resolved and one who is putting in the efforts right so that being resolved to say that this is what is right according to my understanding this is what i need to do right more like someone who is exerting his or her will though that is also putting effort it kind of suggests that strong will and self motivation which is important because This is not something that can be achieved in one lifetime. Yes, with God's grace, nothing is impossible. We are not ruling out that. But in general, this is something that calls for effort over many, many lifetimes. Aneka Janmasam Siddha What is attained through many, many lifetimes. So you must have that kind of patience and perseverance. And for that patience and perseverance, you should be convinced that this is what is worth going after. That's why this desire to turn to this path that itself comes after much effort. It is not a mere fancy that appears in the mind. You know, when we grow up, we have fancied many professions. One day we will go to a music concert and then we'll come out thinking that, oh, I want to become a musician. Or we'll meet some uncle or aunt who's a doctor and we'll say, I want to become a doctor. Or one day you will see some sannyasi or swamiji and you'll say, oh, I want to become a swami like him, he's so peaceful. We are not talking about such fancies which come in our mind and which get blown away with time. As we grow up, many such aspirations come and fall away. Because we are not convinced that that is what we need to do. And because we are not convinced, we will not invest our time and energy into some of these fancies that come. Right? Many times, we probably don't even mentally resolve. But we kind of go with the flow. But that is also guided by these deep convictions and impressions that have been left in the mind, right? But the point is, mere fancies that occur in the mind, we will not pursue them. It should be a conviction and a conviction alone will make us invest our time and energy and our life and lifetimes into a path such as this. And because this is an effort that must pan over many many lifetimes, it cannot be just in the superficial mind. It must be something that seeps into the subconscious and becomes a samskara, right? And that is why acting upon it is very, very important. When you want to do something, when you want to do a sadhana, to act upon that, not merely thinking about doing a sadhana. Many, many times in programs, I've had this opportunity when people ask this question, I say that sometimes you have to push yourself. You might not, mentally, you know, it's a Saturday or a Sunday, you're supposed to go to the Sai Centre or you're supposed to go to a Balvikas class. You probably are not feeling up to it today, right? You're feeling that, oh, I'm not having the same kind of drive or I'm not having the same feeling. And Swami says, you should not do anything without feelings. so should I do it? Even at such times when you push yourself to do, it is like your mind telling your own mind that this is important to me. I'm committing myself to it. Yes, I may not have the complete mental involvement in doing it but this is important this must be done so i will do it when you commit yourself like that these all form these samskaras in the mind right that's why abhyasa purva abhyasa krishna says it is not merely resolutions of the past it is resolutions that were acted upon in the past they become samskaras and that will make you act even in the present i don't know if we can say this but from what krishna is saying in these past few verses I think it appears like a huge reassurance that he is giving us that once you turn to the spiritual path, once you take to the path of yoga, you may slip, you may slow down, but you will never move backwards. You will always only be moving forward. And eventually, he says, you reach Param Gatim. Gati means path, Param Gatim means the farthest the path can take you or the last point in the path. What is the farthest point in any path? It is the destination, isn't it? So when Krishna spoke about Karma Yoga, we discussed that karma cannot give knowledge. It only prepares the mind to receive that knowledge. So in that sense, karma doesn't take you to Paramgatim, the final point in the path. It only takes you to one step. Or it takes you to one particular station or one particular bus stand, which is closer to the final destination, right? So to say, so here Krishna is speaking about the yogi or a yogic outlook, to be more specific. He says that will take you to the ultimate destination, the param gatim, right? And the reassurance is, once you take to this path, you may slip, you may fall, you may slow down, but you will always move forward. There is no turning back from this. And I think that's a huge, huge reassurance to all of us that we can take a lot of courage from. So that is the 45th verse. We'll go to the 46th verse, the penultimate verse in this particular chapter and we'll see what Krishna says there.
1: Tapas Vidhyodhiko Yogi a yogi is higher than
0: men of austerity. He is considered higher even than men of knowledge. The yogi is also higher than men of action. Therefore, O Arjuna do become a yogi. So that is the 46th verse of the 6th chapter. It's a very interesting shloka and it is uh, important to understand this. It's important to understand every shloka. But uh, it's a very interesting shloka and given that it is being said here, I think it could calls for a little bit of deeper look at it. Also because it's the penultimate shloka of the 6th chapter, you can also say that this is in in a certain way a summary or a final command that Krishna is giving. You know, when you take a class for one hour, 45 minutes, at the end of it, the teacher says, okay, now that you've learned this, this is what you have to do. Like the homework that is given, or when you're trying to explain a certain procedure, you say, so this is what is the procedure, so this is what you go and start doing now. So in a sense, this verse and the verse that follows is like Krishna summarizing, and of course, Krishna is very clearly saying here in the end of the shloka, Tasmat yogi bhava arjuna. O Arjuna, therefore go and be a yogi. That's the command that Krishna is giving, right? And what does that mean? If Swami is saying go and be a yogi, it applies to each one of us. So, what does it mean? How do I go and be a yogi? Well, you might say that what is there in that? Anyway, Krishna has been speaking about yoga and yogi only. What is so special about this command that Krishna is giving at this point in this shloka in the chapter? How is it different from what he has been speaking so far? What makes it different? What is intriguing about what Krishna is saying here is what Krishna says in the first line or what he says before he gives this command Go and be a yogi Because Krishna says Tapasvibhyaha adhikaha yogi Superior to the ascetics is the yogi. adhikaha The yogi is considered higher than even a jnani. api adhikaha He is considered higher than even a jnani. Well here jnani does not mean one who has attained the supreme jnana because that jnana and the yogi who attains the paramgati is one and the same. Because in the second chapter and even in the third chapter, Krishna kept speaking about a jnani, right, as the ideal that one has to reach. So, here when Krishna says, api matah adhikaha, the yogi is greater than a jnani, it is not a reference to that jnani. Here, jnani means the knowledgeable one, one who has acquired immense scholarship. So, Krishna says, a yogi is considered greater than even a scholar. Then he says, Karma bhyascha adhiko yogi. Greater than the men of action is a yogi. Tasmat yogi bha Arjuna. Therefore, O Arjuna, be a yogi. So who is this yogi that Krishna is speaking of as being higher than all this and hence he is saying, Arjuna, you should be one of them. Be a yogi. Since this is occurring in the portion about Dhyana Yoga, some people say that you know Krishna is saying that you know a dhyana yogi or meditating yogi is better than a jnani who is a scholar, a meditating yogi is better than a karma yogi. We have been going through this chapter over many many weeks, but if you were to read all of these shlokas that Krishna is speaking of here, like you are reading a book. It might appear like you know it makes sense that Krishna is talking about dhyana, he's talking about dhyana yogi, and now when he's saying a yogi is better than all of these people, he is referring to a dhyana yogi, right? But I think it is not necessarily in that manner, because as we have seen, dhyana itself was only spoken of as a tool for a yogi, right? And much of the confusion comes when we start seeing a karma yogi as different from a jnana yogi, a jnana yogi as being different from somebody who meditates. And then later, when we bring in the concept of a bhakta, we'll say, okay. And that is why a lot of people say that Krishna is telling contradictory things. At one point he is saying this is better. The next chapter he is saying that is better. It is not the case at all. Krishna is all through only speaking about a yogi, whom we are will redefine again here. And everything else is only pointing towards a life that particular yogi has to lead. When that yogi acts how he must act. When that yogi performs his duty, how it must be performed. If that yogi has to do sadhana, how it must be performed. Right. So everything is pointing towards that same sadhaka alone. Now Krishna spoke of how from the point where one feels the need to seek something higher to the point where one reaches the goal. This journey takes many lifetimes. And one passes through many, many stages in this process. In between, one is a person of action, right? Might be a, a person with a, a karma yoga bent of mind. But nevertheless, he's a man of action, right? He's doing actions, he's performing his duties and he's trying and striving to do it in the right manner. Then when you start becoming a jignyasa, you seek knowledge, you want to understand better, you want to learn, you want to read, you want to listen from scholars. And eventually you become a scholar in that process. And then you start doing sadhana, you probably pick up meditation and performing that dhyana and other austerities, you become a tapasvi. So these are all different stages that one goes through from the point where one says, I need to turn to spirituality till the point where one reaches the paramgati. All of these can be different things that one goes through, different phases that one goes through, right? In any order, right? I'm not saying that first you have to be a karma yogi and then you graduate to becoming a tapaswi. No, I'm not saying like that. Multiple lifetimes, you probably go into these roles in different combinations, in different births. But these are all various destinations one goes through before reaching that paramgati, right? But what Krishna speaks of as the goal, what he explained in this particular chapter you know, when he completed the section about Dhyana Yoga, when he said what the yogi achieves at the end of all this is what he defined as Samadrishti, where he sees the self, the Atma in all, and he sees all and everything in that Atma, in that self. Right? So he said that is the experience that eventually the yogi reaches. So to see, Only the self or only Krishna in all is much higher than all of these stages one crosses and comes in this path. That of a tapasvi, that of a karmi, that of a jnani, of a scholar, right? All of these are stages one crosses. The final achievement is that samadrishti, the ability to see the lord in all or the self in all, right? So that is the param gatim. The final point in this destination. So when Krishna says that be a yogi, a yogi must be one who always has his or her vision fixed only in this Paramgatim. Everything else is only seen as a stage in this path. Maybe that is why Krishna uses this phrase Paramgatim. That is the final state of the path. When you refer to something as the Param Gatim, it means there is nothing further to look forward to. That is the end of the journey. There is nothing more you can achieve. So when you are on this journey, there will be many, many attainments in the process. Somebody might come and tell, oh, you're a great person, right? Oh, you sit in meditation and you're getting lost for hours together. But one does not get lost in all of those things and always has the mind fixed. So it is in that context Krishna is saying that a yogi is higher than a man of action yogi. He is higher than a scholar. He may be a scholar who has mastered all the Vedas which is in itself a stupendous task but still strive to be a yogi who is higher than the scholar. The yogi is greater than this yogi that Krishna is speaking about is greater than a scholarly yogi. Or one may have enormous control over the mind. One has mastered the art of meditation. One can sit and meditate for hours together or do different kind of yogas and karma yoga, kundalini yoga. All of that, one becomes a great tapasvi or one can go without food, one can go without sleep. But tapasvibhya adhikah yogi the yogi that Krishna is speaking about is greater than even this tapasvi. So describing the yogi as this, someone who aspires only for that ultimate samadrishti, Krishna is telling Arjuna, tasmat yogi bhava Arjuna. Therefore, O Arjuna, be a yogi. Not a yogi who is after some of these attainments that are in the path, but one who is only after that paramgati then it is not that Arjuna can be such a yogi and he is refusing to be one. Isn't it? Right, As Arjuna said, being a yogi is like, it seems impossible given the nature of the mind. That is the problem, right? It is not that Arjuna is refusing to be a yogi. For instance, I may love Swami immensely. I may want to obey Swami with all my heart. But if Swami comes and tells me, Yogi Bhava, after describing the nature of a yogi, as one who sees nothing but the self everywhere, with all my love, in spite of all my devotion, will I be able to follow that command, Yogi Bhava? Well, I can't speak for anybody else. I can speak for myself. I think that's quite impossible. But I can always aspire to be that Yogi. right? A Karma Yogi is not necessarily a perfect Yogi. One who has reached the state of a Nyani is one who is perfect. But a karma yogi is a spiritual aspirant who is performing karma in a certain manner, aspiring to reach that final stage. Such a person we refer to as a karma yogi, isn't it? So even an aspirant of that ultimate yogic state is referred to as a yogi. I go to a bus stand. I go to the bus stand in Prashantinilam, let's say. There is a bus that says Bangalore. There is a bus that says Anantapur. There's a bus that says Tirupati on its board. But all these buses are in Puttaparthi. Right? They are not in those places. They are in Puttaparthi. They are defined by the destination they are going towards, isn't it? So there may be a bus that goes, say, till midway to Bangalore. So the bus which goes, let's say, to Bhagipalli and the bus that goes to Bangalore, these bus may follow a similar route for a major part of the journey. But still the buses will be defined by the destination they reach, isn't it? Similarly, when Krishna says, Yogi Bhava Arjuna, and it is definitely a command to you and me where Swami is saying, be a yogi, it doesn't mean be perfect. It means strive for that perfection. May you be defined by that craving. May you be defined by that goal. May your life be defined by by that aspiration to reach that goal right? so Krishna defines the ultimate state of yoga and then is telling Arjuna be a yogi suggesting may that and that alone be your destination may you aspire for nothing less than that right? you may become a knowledgeable person in the process but don't stop at that you may become a sannyasi in, in that birth maybe but don't stop at that Fix your mind only on the ultimate state and be a yogi who is moving towards that. Because that is the problem with Arjuna right now. He is looking at the situation before him and he is trying to make a decision which will suit this situation. But Krishna is encouraging him to see the ultimate goal and nothing less than that. Let your aspiration for the ultimate goal decide what decision that you take for the present. I think this we all can try to do, right? I'm not saying it is easy, but can we define ourselves by the destination that we wish to reach and can each decision that we make in life be defined by that aspiration? I may not become a yogi like what Krishna has described, but I can keep reminding myself that that is the goal I want to reach the ability to see Swami in everyone. right? Now that makes this command, be a yogi, seem more accessible to me. The next shloka, the final shloka, the last one is even more interesting. Let's see, I think we'll have just about enough time to complete that and we can conclude the chapter with this. So this is the last verse of the sixth chapter.
1: Yogi nama pisarvesham Madgate nantaratmana Shraddhavan bhajate yomam Sameyukta mataha Even among all
0: the yogis, he who adores me with his mind fixed on me and with faith He is considered by me to be the best of all the yogis. So that is the 47th verse, the final verse of the 6th chapter. In conclusion, Krishna speaks again as Ishwara. After having said, being a yogi is better than being a tapasvi, a person of action, a scholar, Krishna says, even among yogis, there is one type of yogi that is dear to me that I consider as being better. He says, Yoginam api sarvesham even among all the yogis matgatena gatena antaratmana who is merged in me with the antaratma or the mind. Shraddhavan bhajate yomam Shraddhavan, one of faith bhajate yahamam one who worships me Same yuktatamo mataha. He is, in my view, most exalted among all the yogis. What does this mean? We can understand Krishna saying, be a yogi, one who aspires only for the highest and nothing less. But this almost suggests that to be a devotee is better than maybe being a regular yogi or an aspiring spiritual yogi in that sense, right? One way of seeing it is, Krishna is again praising karma yoga. That's the undercurrent of the entire Bhagavad Gita. Because as we have discussed in the past, there can be no karma yoga without devotion to God. Only when you have bhakti can you do all your actions and duties as an offering. And only when you have that kind of bhakti, you can merely draw satisfaction from performing your actions as worship. Maybe that is why Krishna is saying that being such a yogi is better because he is trying to drive the point that karma yoga is better. Another way of looking at it is, which is an extension of what the point that I just made, in the case of a devotee, sometimes even the aspiration for moksha becomes secondary the devotee wants nothing but to think of the Lord and to please the Lord. So, in a way, the mentality of a devotee is more selfless than even that of a mumukshu or an aspirant for moksha. So, if one is capable of being a bhakta of this sort, as Krishna is described here, whose mind is constantly dwelling on the Lord, who is completely drawn by that faith and is doing everything for the sake of the Lord. If one is able to be a Bhakta of that nature, he or she becomes more exalted than any other yogi. As we have seen, Krishna explains many disciplines. He says, do your duty without expectations or the discipline of meditation. All of these become simple, in fact, extremely accessible when there is Bhakti or devotion in the individual. Maybe that is why Krishna concludes by telling Arjuna, be a yogi and when you choose to be a yogi, if you have to be, be a bhakta, who is constantly absorbed in me. There is nothing like that, to be a yogi like that. right? So this is the idea for this particular shloka that makes sense to me. But I'll also mention what a uh, few other commentators mention Adi Shankara especially. In his commentary he says when Krishna tells Mat gatena." Antaratmana, Adi Shankara says, one whose mind is occupied with me, and when Krishna says me, he is referring to the supreme Lord and not any lesser deities like Rudras and Adityas and so on, which are referred to in the Vedas. Some worship which is addressed to these smaller deities are usually for lesser benefits, right? So when Krishna says Madgatena Antaratmana, he says dwell on me, the supreme Lord, not on these lesser deities. Right? So Adi Shankara says, worshipping the Supreme Lord is the best than having lesser desires. But I think this is mentioned in the previous shloka itself. Right? It has already been discussed. That's why I feel Krishna is specifically speaking about a devotee and how a devotee has an edge when it comes to the spiritual path. Of course, it is not simply a believer in God. When we say a devotee, you and I can say, oh, I am a Swami's devotee, I am a Sai devotee. I am not referring to that kind of a thing. Krishna is referring to a devotee for whom the Lord is the world. Nothing more is valuable than the Lord. No other aspiration is as important as pleasing the Lord. Right. So that is the kind of devotee that Krishna is referring to and saying, telling Arjuna, oh Arjuna, be a yogi who aspires for the ultimate. And if you ever choose to be a yogi, if you can, be a devotee. Because there is nothing greater than that a very beautiful note to end our session today and the sixth chapter thank you dear listeners for joining me week after week I most humbly offer this effort at Swami's Lotus Feet as we always have been doing in this uh, series so far we will have a summary of the sixth chapter which should probably take up the entire episode next week so that will be the next step for us and uh, before we begin the seventh chapter so thank you for being with me if you have any thoughts if you have in disagreements with what I've said or you strongly agree with what I've said and if you feel to express it feel free to write to us at listener at radioside.org. you can write to me personally as uh, some of you do so thank you, I'll meet you all next week till then, keep safe take care, Jay Sida